Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Born in Britain, raised in both Jamaica and New York City, and now based in Los Angeles, Ian Edwards has been a successful comedian and TV writer for two decades, dating back to the Keenan Ivory Wayans show in 1998. Since then, Ian has written for Saturday Night Live, Blackish, The Boondocks, The Carmichael Show, Crashing, and Friends from College. He's performed on both Deaf Comedy Jam and Conan, and he holds the distinction of releasing the first and only stand-up comedy album on Team Coco Records. Ian has filmed his first hour special for All Things Comedy to be presented by Comedy Central sometime in 2019. He was still editing footage when we met up at the Comedy Store, so let's get to it! So, Ian Edwards, thank you for joining me finally. <laughs> Oftentimes when I see you, I'm not expecting to see you. Either we're in... A different city from New York and uh-huh. L.A., and we're at a festival. Oh, right. Oh, Ian. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I think I ran into you on a flight before, too. Yeah. Yeah, or the airport, <laughs> or just, yeah. So it kind of throws me off. Like, <laughs> like I can't, I don't really know it's you for sure, mm-hmm. unless it's at a comedy situation. Right. So when I see you, like, on a street or something, like, if I'm walking down the streets of New York City, where you where you live, right? Yeah, I live in New York. Like I, I don't I don't expect you to be there. So, <laughs> so just don't be there. All right. <laughs> I'll try to make sure stop, all of my appearances stop throwing are me off. planned. You know. It's like when 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 you meet a woman and you, mm-hmm. and then you haven't seen her for a while and she changes her hair and it just throws me off completely. Yeah. Yeah, like but as can't a, change. But as a as a working comedian, that must happen a lot because you're used to being on the road and associating certain people with certain cities. Yeah. And then you see the, that person in a different city. You know you're supposed to know them, but they're in but, a different context, yeah. so you have no idea how you know them. Yeah, I know. I ran into a comic the other day, and she's like, you don't remember me? I said, when's the last time I saw you? She said, when you had dreads. I said, you know how long that is? <laughs> Just because you remember me, mm-hmm. doesn't. I'm not obligated to like remembering you. And you know, and I remembered her after while we were talking, but she tried to be a little offended. I said, "You don't have to write. Mm-hmm. You don't have to write." <laughs> I don't remember you having dreads. Yeah, see, how long ago was that? Over ten years ago. Okay, probably. yeah, time flies. Yeah. Mm. Do you think of yourself? I know you're you're busy editing your first Comedy Central hour special. Mm-hmm. Do you think of yourself? More as a writer or a performer or both? All of them, yeah. Even I'll even throw an actor in there because when I get a chance to do it, I'll do a good job, yeah. Right, like for, uh, Friends of Friends from College, Friends from yeah. college on Netflix. Yeah. You wrote for it and then you were also on it. Yeah. So I'm Did you trying. write yourself into it or no? No. <laughs> it was, they came up with the role in, you know, the character because they, they, you know, they're just looking for angles or ways to tell a story and it'd be funny. And then it was like Christmas. It was like the last day of work for Christmas. And then we 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 had a a Christmas party the day before. It was we came to work. You had the party the, the, and you still had work the next day? Yeah. Okay. And then uh 
And then what happened? That's an adult. That's an adult <laughs> yeah, situation. Yeah, it's adults. <laughs> like getting work done. You can go to work the day after the party. <laughs> yeah. And then it, it was just like a break. It was like a Christmas dinner. You okay. Know? And then it wasn't like a typical office holiday party. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like <laughs> we wrecked the place and then have to come back to the to the debris the next morning. Mm-hmm. So we went to a restaurant. Then next morning we're there, and then then they were like. Somebody was like, Ian, say these lines, you know, and I said them, like, just, just having a lot of fun saying them. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, if we do this, then you should do it. And that, that was like December. And then they wrote the script with the character Skull in there. And then they said the whole funeral thing does not work. And so they rewrote it with no funeral, no jump crew, uh-huh. nothing. And then they was like, that doesn't work. Let's go back to the funeral. Huh. And the jump crew, and then then they did it in a way that they they liked. So and they must have really wanted to make you feel like you were a part of. I mean, it the just production. They they, did, they wanted did, to to make the to tell the best story that they could tell, mm-hmm. and they tried it with it. Then they tried it without it. Then they put it back in, and it worked. And then when they were shooting, they hit me up. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, "Hey, you you still want you to play the skull?" So I was like, "All right, cool," because. Normally, people tell you things, and they don't mean it. <laughs> so I didn't like. How long have you lived it. in Hollywood? Yeah. How long have, have you lived in Hollywood? Like over fifteen years now. Yeah. So I've, I've been made more promises than I have money. You know. <laughs> people promise you stuff every day. Right. Yeah. Is is that why it it's taken this long to to do an hour special? Nah, nobody ever promised me one of those. So that just it's just. Listen, my start, the way my career works is mm-hmm. is like I just like work good and then people who are fans of mine, like whether they're friends or friends of my comedy, they'll be like, Hey, I want you to write on my show. I have a show now. I want you to do this. I got this now and and Burr had to deal with uh with uh all all things comedy. Right. Had to deal with Comedy Central. So it's between Burr and my agent Max and Al Magical. Like, those are the people. Like, again, people like, hey, Ian doesn't have a special. This is bananas. Yeah, it is bananas. And we, have a, we have a deal. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's give Ian a special. Yeah. So that's a promise that you, you can feel fairly comfortable believing in when it comes from Bill Burr, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, to just be comfortable in yourself, too, also. Like, like, I didn't panic. Like, I was going to shoot a... The crazy thing is, I had the director of the special, his name is Aristotle Affairs. He shot something for Comedy Central mm-hmm. called Goatface. Uh, and it aired last year. Right. That was him and uh, Fahim, Fahim and Hassan. Hassan. And, uh, what was that? and of course, Asif. Asif. And then... Uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, so then, me and him started looking for locations even before... The Burr situation and all things comedy situation. We like, I'm like, I'm gonna use. I, I turned down a writing job last year. I was like, I'm gonna shoot this special because even if it doesn't sell, I need to put this material in the can so that I can move on. And then I can't keep saying it. And then if I don't record it and then get a special deal later on, and I have to say it, it's never gonna sound the way it's supposed to sound mm-hmm. because I've moved on. I got new material. Right. So I just shoot this thing. So we started looking at locations. We checked out uh, Dynasty Typewriter, a bunch of places. 
And we were trying to figure that out, and then Burn Him came along. So we just put it in motion anyway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those things where you, you had the material and you knew you had to do something with it. Yeah, because I was going to shoot it, try to sell it, and if it didn't sell, just put the album out. Right. You know, at least at, over the time, I'd own it, and over the, over the decades, I'd make the money back. What's the, what's the business deal with the previous album? That you did, that was Team Coco Records. Team Coco Records, yeah. The first and only? Yeah. <laughs> Team Coco Records I like album. to start things up and shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? Uh, I've done Conan a few times, mm-hmm. and then I was in the green room for, was it a taping of another one? Mm-hmm. Maybe my third one. And then JP sits next to me and says, hey, yeah. man. Uh, JP Buck the Booker. Yeah, JP Booker. Buck the Booker, yeah. And he's like, hey, man. Uh, we're thinking about starting a record label. And here's the crazy thing. Me and my manager at the time were looking for record labels again mm-hmm. to like to record an album because I hadn't got done a special. And I was like, I should just put out an album because people are listening to podcasts. So they'll probably listen to an album of mine before they like sit down and watch watch it. Like, mm-hmm. Is this something you can do when you're listening to me when you're jogging, running, or or in the gym, or driving in your car. I was like, this, this it, an album is, to me, in my mind, was more accessible. So And it's cheaper to do, right. so let me do that. So once I started putting that in motion, and we started like talking to record labels and stuff like that, then JP sits next to me and propositions me with this, <laughs> with this offer. Yeah. But then they, they never put out another... Album. Right. Yeah, I don't care about that. Mine is out. <laughs> this, that's on them. I but, love them. But, but does but does that mean that you have an even sweeter deal with them now, or does that make it harder well, for you? I don't know. They gave me the the album, mm-hmm. so I I own it. Oh, okay. so you own the masters. I own it, and okay. it's on CD, baby. It's on mm-hmm. Spotify. It's okay. on everything. So you know, just, as long as it's out there. Yeah, it's out there. Yeah, people still listen to it. People still hit me up. You and then the, most people in the world haven't heard it. So, you know, so I still promote it on my podcast. Like, here's a funny thing about albums. Like, people put them out, mm-hmm. whether music or, and then after the first two months of promoting, they stop promoting. And I'm right. like, most of the people in the world have never heard this. Why would you stop promoting it? Like, you can always get new people into it. So I'm like... I've always thought that before I even had one about other people's mm-hmm. projects. So I was like, just keep promoting it and, and get it to more and more people. And then one day it'll really hit the boom that it, it'll get. Right. Yeah. That, well, that's why it's, it doesn't matter whether we're talking now mm-hmm. or whether we were talking a year from now. Mm-hmm. People, whenever they find this podcast, mm-hmm. will hear you talking and go, oh, there's an album. Yeah, called 100% Half-Assed. And they can find it. Yeah. It's so they, <laughs> I'm going to take that as a good sign. A good sign to laugh. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, 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 I like that about the internet. That you, It allows you, especially with the internet, it allows you to find mm-hmm. things from decades ago. Yeah. It's still out there. Yeah. Um, so you were born in Britain, mm-hmm. grew up in Jamaica, mm-hmm. then moved to the States at the end of your school years. Yeah, that was like 17. So I went to high school in in New York on Long Island. Yeah. Do you identify as like a 
global person then, or do you identify? Yeah, that sounds better. So I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> global, exotic, however you want to put it, whatever sounds. Person good. of the person of the multinational, multinational. Yeah, but I only moved to English speaking countries. <laughs> <laughs> but in but in terms of like where, how do you identify like your heritage? Do you do you identify? Since you've been in America so long, do you just mm-hmm. identify as an American, or do you still maintain ties to your Jamaican heritage or to Britain? Uh, all of it, to be honest, because mm-hmm. you know, to be uh, a Jamaican British person, like I have family that I grew up cousins that I grew up with in England up until I was nine years old, mm-hmm. and they're Jamaican, and they were born there, but they're British, and being British. It's just not being like a white British person. It's, it's your, there's Indian people, there's Pakistani British, there's Asian British, there's Caribbean British, and there's white. It's just not European anymore. Mm-hmm. So everybody has, just like New York or L.A., everybody has their culture within the mass culture of being British, and everybody has their identity. So I have that, and then grew up in Jamaica, and so I have that. You know, all the things that I experienced there, you know, still, you know, guide who I am today. And then growing up in New York, you know, it's like I like growing up in New York and Jamaica. In Jamaica, people tell you the truth. They look you in the eye and tell you the truth. In New York, they tell you the truth. And also, I like California. You know, I've lived here a long time, too. And it, it's a great state that has everything. So I identify with being a Californian. What was your immigration experience like with America? Uh, like, what do you mean specifically? Uh, in terms of assimilating or... or... Oh, I, I think that helped me get into comedy because... Mm-hmm. So when I came here, you have to start over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because... You, you know, you're a teenager. You think you've got everything figured out and then you move to a new country. Right. And there's black people here that are different than the black people you grew up with. They sound different. They eat different foods. Like, I've never been anywhere where black people were different than me until I came to New York. So you don't even have right. the black people crutch. And then it was a right, time... Right, because it's a Caribbean. It's a Caribbean. And then, you know, in, back in then... In Britain and in Jamaica. And, and Britain and Jamaica. Yeah. But now you're here. And then here. you get to New York and it's all... Right. It's all American. And you just get thrown into just basic black. Yeah, basic black... <laughs> And then they're not <laughs> totally accepting. Mm-hmm. And you, you, so you bond with the few Caribbean and Jamaican people that I went to my high school. We had fights with them. Where you were know, you in New York? In Uniondale, Long Island. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Long Island. So yeah. that's, a, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, it's a whole nother thing. I was going to go with Brooklyn. Okay. Nah, people always think I'm from Brooklyn. So, well, yeah, because yeah. There's, a, there's a big Carib- Caribbean, Caribbean community presence. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Prospect Heights and... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I have cousins there too. Yeah, but you were in Long Island, so mm-hmm. so how? So is that when you found your comedy voice? Is yeah, that, is that what you're saying? That's where I started. Like, I mean, first I got here, and it's kind of weird. Like, I was working at a Burger King, and then so then then I'm meeting white people. My high school is mostly black, but I'm meeting white people, and then um, there's one black. More than one black guy, but the main one t- for me mm-hmm. that meant a lot to my life is, uh, was uh, his name is Greg Ellis. So he actually went to my high school. He worked at this Burger King. 
And he was just funny as shit. Like, when you worked with Greg, he was just hilarious. So, so some of the things that I did, I learned to assimilate was, uh, like, I'm a, I played, grew up playing soccer, but I learned American football because I watched what people were talking about. Right. So I learned football, started to like it, and could have conversations about football. Uh, I learned music. Like, I wasn't just listening to just reggae. And I listened to, to rock, Stairway to Heaven, whatever they played on the radio. Because mm-hmm. you know, somebody would control. Burger King was like a prison. Somebody would control the radio. <laughs> to see whoever was there before you. <laughs> the senior burger flipper. Mm-hmm. He controlled the radio. So you had to listen to whatever. You know, Greg would control it when he was there. Uh-huh. You know, so then you you just you just listen. What would Greg put it on? But he played R and B, hip hop, uh-huh. and Greg was also a singer too. Okay, and he had a song on the radio. I remember him, Greg, having a song on the radio. Wow, and and still working and, at, Burger and King. at Burger King. Yeah, it was hilarious. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, and so then he uh, but he was just so he was another thing. I I, I like every time I'm working with Greg, mm-hmm. time just flies. This dude's just funny, and I was like. I need to access my funny side, not knowing that it would lead to comedy, but just as a way to communicate with people. I was like, just in the days of being thrown in this pot and trying to find my bearings, like I forgot that a simple thing about me was that I could be funny because I'm just, my, my, I have this sensory overload from just everything. Mm -hmm. And then that's probably one of the, the biggest moments when I, I was putting meat in the broiler, staring at Greg, laughing and joking after working with him for like who knows how long. And then it hit me. It's like, hey, man, you got to access your funny side. So then that day I was just more conscious of like being funny, saying things, listening to people, reacting to it, and then became the second funniest person at Burger King. <laughs> Yeah. Did you ever become the funniest person at Burger King? Nah, Greg is just Greg is just hilarious. <laughs> Never became first. When at, he quit, maybe. At what point? At what point did you go from funny at the Burger King to thinking funny at a comedy club? Back, still at the Burger King, and now I'm branching out. I'm not just clowning employees and having fun with employees. Mm-hmm. And 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 I might have also been an asshole to some employees at the at the at the the. The, 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 uh, the, uh, just trying to be funny. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you I probably did insult people and make people the laughing stock of other employees. Just right. you're just trying to search for your funny. Like in retrospect, so I'm just throwing that out there. Teenager clowning people. Sometimes you were roasting. Yeah. Sometimes people got roasted and everybody was laughing. Mm-hmm. But maybe in retrospect, everybody wasn't a fan of being roasted. I've yeah. been roasted before and it wasn't great. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, you you know, didn't the, ask for it. I didn't ask for it, but you know, you fight I, from where I'm from. You always fight back, right. you know? And so you defend yourself. So, and then you, then you're good. So some people probably weren't as, a, you know, in my mental space. <laughs> so, 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 so just roasting people, talking shit, being funny. And then, so I started doing, taking orders on the drive through Burger King. So I'm taking the orders and that's where a comedian wants to be. Yeah, on the drive it's a, my first mic. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just being funny. And when I'm saying funny back then, it's probably really hacky. <laughs> you know, I have no idea. But I'm just doing it to communicate. And now I'm right. branching out, feeling myself. People have been laughing in the back room. So now I'm branching out into this audience on the drive by. 
You know what I'm saying? I'm expanding. It's my internet. Yeah. So then some, I'm clowning, joking, taking people's orders. And then I took somebody's order. They drove to, round to the window. And I'm giving them their food. They say, hey, man, was that you who took my order? I was like, yeah. He said, man, you're funny as hell. You should try comedy. And I don't know why, but that struck a chord with my soul the moment he said it. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And I've never turned back since that moment. I started. And that driver's name was Dave Chappelle. (laughs) I I never (laughs) saw that guy before. (laughs) I don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. It was just some guy. It's just a stranger. Do you remember what his order was? No. Okay. (laughs) No, I'm too self-centered to to do that. You think about other people? No. (laughs) So, yeah. Whopper, no man. (laughs) Yeah. It was a Burger King something. Uh Uh-huh. And so that struck a chord. Did you know where to go? Yeah, there was a comedy club in Levittown called Governors. Mm-hmm. So still there, still there. Yeah, a friend of mine just did it. As a matter of fact, so then I started going to just check out their open mics, mm-hmm. and then then I'd start the things. I was like, where do I start? I started listening to a lot of albums: Rich Pryor, Cosby, Eddie Murphy, just all the comics. So I listened to all of them, just any color, whatever. And figure out now what type of comic I want to be. And then also I was like, where do I get material from? So I said, anything that I would say to somebody that was funny, I'd make a note of it and figure out a way how to put it in a context on stage in front of an audience. And then that would be my material. So now I would just, even if, so if I try something with somebody, talk to somebody, said something that's funny and it worked, I'd say it to somebody else. And then they would not know that I'm writing a set. And then... First time I went on stage, I'd been going to Governor's. I went there one night, told people, co-workers came mm-hmm. out, went on stage, and uh, bombed. <laughs> so everybody I clowned uh-huh. got revenge watching me bomb. You know, because I'd always watched the mics, but I'd never gone on the stage. And then the lights hit me. It was just mad bright. I couldn't see. I lost my sense of sight. Right. And I was like, oh, I, now I know why There's, the cops shine the lights on you when they pull you over. Because they they want you to be, like, fr- they're frozen and you're in complete. So I had to get used to that. So And I st- I was nervous. Mm-hmm. People were there that I knew. Right. It's one thing to be watching the mic, but it's another to actually experience to it. To experience it, yeah. And I stumbled over every joke, except the last joke. I said it correctly mm-hmm. and people laughed. I was like, oh, I just need to get over this nervousness and I'll be fine. So that's all I needed. That so was, I got what I needed out of the first set. That was the silver lining of you bomb the whole set, but then mm-hmm. you, you kill with your pulled closer. It, pulled it together, <laughs> said it mm-hmm. coherently. Oh, people need to understand what I'm saying. Because <laughs> I couldn't even understand what I'm saying. I'm like all over the place. So how long did it take to get up the second time? Uh, maybe the next week. Okay. Just kept on... And just bomb till I got better. What were the open mics like back then at Governor's? There'd be like 10 to 15 people in the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, like real audience. Real people, not comics. Real people, not comics, yeah. Okay. And then all the comics were new. They got to know each other. There was an older, newer group ahead of us. Mm -hmm. You know, how it always is. And we looked up to them and then we came in under them. Who was your first comedy friend? Uh... One of them was Franz Cassius. 
Another one was Derek Johnson. Uh, there's this guy. He still lives in. So this guy started like way after us. Not when I say way after, like maybe two years after us. Yeah. What's his That's name? That's a lifetime when you're starting. That's a counting. lifetime, yeah. And he comes to governors one night and just kills in front of us. So disrespectful. <laughs> and we're like, how many? How long have you been in comedy? He's like, this is my first night. And then every night he would just come and just fucking kill. Mm-hmm. He was just one of those naturals. And I, and I forgot his name. My friend remembers his name. And I've and I, and, I, and like I know his name. I'm just I'm just my memory's just getting terrible. Yeah. But it was just so shocking to us because we've been struggling to get better. And this guy just comes through, and he was like killing for like years. Raymond Pa was another guy, and there was just there was a, just a lot of new people that that were friends. Uh, Greg Rogel, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, yeah. When did you decide that you were ready for the big city? So I'm watching all these comedy shows on TV, right, and. I'm looking at all the comics on those shows. And, and I'm like, there's no Long Island comics on these shows. And, so, and, I, and this is after observing for like a year mm-hmm. and change. Like all the comedy shows that were on, all the late night shows. And I'm like, all these comics. And the people who were ahead of me on Long Island, none of them were on those shows. People that were funnier than me that's been doing it longer like people that hosted shows on the weekends or did features on the weekends which is where i wanted to get at governors and all those like none of them were on these shows and i was like oh all the comics on these shows are manhattan comics so i need to get to manhattan like yeah you're not gonna get there from i'm Levitan. not gonna get that from, from levittown, levittown or performing in the tri-state area, which I was doing at the time, and mm-hmm. making money on the weekends. I need to get to Manhattan. So, first place in Manhattan, like, so I need to get into a city club. Mm-hmm. So I went to the, I, you know, I went to, I got into, I went to Boston, to the Boston, mm-hmm. which is in the village, you know where it's at. And uh, I didn't, I did some comedy contests, and you needed to bring people in. Mm. And I didn't have anybody with me, and I walked out that night on the street, and I saw two people that knew me, and they came in. So I got on that night. Oh, but wow. my friend Raymond P.A., I think he won that night. Uh-huh. So then he, they, they took him in. And then I didn't get in until I'd done something where I had to go to L.A., and then... And then, uh, so then I had, there was a manager in LA that knew me because he helped me perform in LA when I got to LA. Okay. It it was just a trip to LA. Mm -hmm. So then when I came back to New York, there was an audition at the Boston for like a TV show. Okay. And then the LA manager calls Barry Katz to say, hey, I want to get Ian on the show. So it felt like, an L.A. manager <laughs> calling for a guy uh-huh. to be on a showcase in New York. So Barry was like, yeah. <laughs> right? And then I go there that night. This is maybe a year or so later. Mm-hmm. 
I go to, back to the Boston at night, and I destroy the place in five minutes. Destroy. Like, like... Yeah, that LA heat. I've never even really, I know, right? <laughs> I, to, to be honest, I, I never even really thought about how good I did. Like, Barry went back on stage and made a speech about me afterwards. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, this is just coming back now. <laughs> and, and I'm like, Deep I don't, yeah, I, I don't even care. Because the only, because the most important thing was then after that, Barry wanted to manage me. Uh, and I got in at the Boston. And I didn't get the, TV show, but I got that. What was the TV show? Do you remember? Uh, it's it's so long ago. It's embarrassing. I'm not gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't write this into uh, any episodes of Crashing. No, no, no. But no, was <laughs> we use we use a lot of Pete's life and we talk and stuff like that. You right. We like. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was at the boss. Yeah. One time I got one over, over on Barry. <laughs> yeah. Barry got buried. And then you, at some point, ended up moving in with Will Silvins. Is that right? Yeah. So Will had a duplex, mm-hmm. lived in a duplex in, where is that place? It's, what part of Jersey is that? What part of Jersey is? <laughs> Jersey City? Jersey City. Yeah. Uh-huh. See, my mind, I can't remember regular shit, uh-huh. which is amazing because you jump on the PATH train after three stops you're right across the water. You can see Manhattan, and you can get to places in Manhattan on the PATH train faster than if you lived in Manhattan and wanted to get to some places on the regular train. So this is ideal, but the rent is like, it's Jersey City. Mm-hmm. It's, at the time, nobody respects it, so the rents are like... So I'm basically living in Manhattan, just three stops away in Jersey City, and you feel like you're in Brooklyn, and the great neighborhood... Will was living there, and he had this. Some roommates had moved out. Mm-hmm. So first, me and Talent rent, okay. rented the room from Will. Uh huh. Like, <laughs> if Talent, this is a long time. So if Talent had a girl he wanted to bring there, he would bring it back there. And if I wanted to stay there that night for the same reasons or just by myself, we'd just talk. So then both we chipped in and rented the extra room <laughs> from Will. Okay. And then at some point. I was just like, hey, man, I just want the room. And then Talent was ready to not have the room anymore. So then I just furnished it, and then I, I was Will's roommate. How and long? There. And how long was that? That was for... It's so hard to remember how long everything was. <laughs> we're, getting, least, we're getting older. At least, yeah. So it's like maybe four years. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of lived on Long Island, too. Like, I wasn't there all the time. Okay. But I just had a place. And if I wanted to just go home to Long Island, I'd go home to Long Island. If I wanted to go to Jersey City, I would go. Because my family lived in Long Island, so I'd, you know, you know, I'd go to, you know, see, hang or eat my mother's cooking and shit like that. And see my dad and my, wh- whoever came over on Sunday to eat with the family. But I'd have this place in Jersey City that I could just go to any time. So what was going on in your, your career that inspired you to make the move out here to L.A.? I got a writing job. So the way I got the writing job was, so one year, early in comedy. Were you looking to be a writer? No, I didn't know comedy led to that. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. What, did, what were you hoping it led to? Uh, just I just know that you can make 
a living on the road being mm-hmm. a stand-up. And then also you could pitch and get your, you can get your own TV show mm-hmm. and... Be one of those Manhattan be one, comics be on one TV. Of the, or be one of those Manhattan, you know, the Ray Romano or mm-hmm. Seinfeld or something like that. You could be, you've Ian. seen Chris Rock, you've mm-hmm. seen everybody's trajectory. Yeah, like, yeah. So you want to be a Manhattan cop on TV and getting out there. So what happened was I was getting really good at the time. I was really focused. You know, I was just, just doing everything you're supposed to do. I was just getting really good. And then... But before that, a friend of mine, Arnold Acevedo, I don't know if you know Arnold. No, we were all standing on a street corner one night after a show talking. Arnold somehow said, I have 356 sketches. I'm like, what? <laughs> why, why do you have 356 sketches? That's a lot of sketches. It's a lot of sketches. And he said, well, just in case one day I get called, I get a writing job on SNL, I don't have to every week come up with sketches. Um, in my head, I'm like panicking. I don't have any sketches. Yeah. What the fuck is going to happen? Like, I'd have to come up with shit every week. I was like, Cal- right, calm down, Ian. This is all a com- We're all talking. I'm having this conversation with myself in my head. All right. You usually come up with sketch ideas and you never write them down. You say you're going to remember them mm-hmm. and you never write them down. From now on, you're going to remember these ideas and you're going to write them down and one by one. You're not going to try to get 356 sketches in one night. Yeah, no. You're going to, little by little, come up with it. So every time, the same... Now I'm just thinking that it's the same process with stand-up as trying jokes and then writing them down and saying, this is going to be in my set when I'm having conversations with people. I'd, like, say something to somebody and then be like, that's a sketch. I'll write it down or I'll write it completely out. Mm-hmm. So then, then I, I started stacking sketches. So then... Some Keenan Ivory Wins had a talk show years ago. Yeah. And uh, it was on the air, and I'm in my living room watching it. And then they... I'm, shit. I know his name. He's J.B. Smooth's manager. He hit me up. He's J.B. Smooth's manager now. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm blanking. <laughs> he hit me up. He was running Gotham at the time. He said, they're having an audition there. Shauna Gar's having an audition there. She's a producer for... Keenan show, mm-hmm. they want to, they're looking for writers to be on the show that's already on the air. They want to see a stand up. I'm like, cool. I go through, I do the stand up. Then I do the stand up, and then, then she's like, do you have any sketches? They like me. Do you have any sketches? And you're so ready. They, I'm ready. So that night, I, I had three sketches already written. Mm-hmm. I wrote up three of the other ideas that I had. Like I always made sure I put the beats down on where they were going to go. Mm-hmm. Wrote those up. Faxed it in. That's how long ago. Yeah. Faxed it in the, by morning. And yeah, this then, is the 90s. Yeah. And then it was like, it's the end of the 90s. Like, you got the job. And then I flew to LA. Show lasted maybe two more months. Mm. Got a lump sum of money because you have to hire somebody for 13 weeks. And that's the most money I ever had. And then I was like in L.A. driving around with Hugh Moore. Mm. I forgot whose car we was in. <laughs> we was playing Mob Deep. And I've heard this song so many times, but I never listened to the words really. And Hugh just repeated the line, scared money don't make money. And then I was like, these motherfuckers are talking to me. Because I was thinking about going back to New York with this lump sum payout of money. Yeah. And I had the apartment, 
and I could just keep doing shows because I was a Manhattan copping. I was in at the Cellar, the Carolines, uh, Stand Up New York, all of it. So I could stay in the city and, you know, Dave would tell Consistent gigs. Consistent gigs. And then I was getting colleges and shit too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, and just build up stand up. And then I was like, or I could get an apartment here, even though the show's canceled and I don't know anybody here and try. I feel like I can get more writing work here, which is what I wanted to do at the time. I liked, you know, even though Keenan's show was rough, it was a great boot camp of teaching you how to write under pressure. Right, because it's a nightly talk show. It's a nightly so. talk show. You got to produce all the time. You didn't yeah. get any sleep. I was like, I, I, I want to stay here. And I, I like the weather. I didn't want to also, like, battle. There was, there was a, some of the comedy circuit consisted of, like, fighting people over $75 spots, mm. you know, in, like, shitty places. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I going back to that? Yeah, why would anyone want to fight over yeah. $75? Or I can write in a sunny office spots, yeah. and make, you know, look how much I just got paid to to get fired. <laughs> like, right. So I'm just it's an early here. Hollywood lesson. Yeah, so I'm like, I'll stay, you know, I'll stay here. How long did it take to get another writing gig? I got one that year. Okay. Yeah, because a friend from that show got a job on a new pilot for for MTV called uh, The Lyricist Lounge Show, Alison Faust. So she recommended me because she wrote on Keenan's show. So she recommended me. So then I had a bunch of sketches now more sketches from Keenan show and just other shit that I wrote, sent that in. And then they was like, yeah. So then I got on that show. And then since then you've gotten fairly consistent sitcom work uh, or, yeah. si- or sketch work. Both, sketch, both. It was, it was all sketch and variety. And then, then I did, then Kevin Hart moved out here and then I wrote on his TV show. Like it was, it was, it lasted six episodes. But then people didn't know the Kevin Hart that right. they know now. It's, yeah, it's a diff- it was a different Kevin Hart. Still the same Hart, but nobody. Right. And and then, but I, he wasn't famous. He so. wasn't famous as famous now. And then, yeah. and then I, I didn't really want to write on sitcoms. Like the toll of that was like the hours were crazy. So then I just wrote on like smaller things, you okay. know. And then one and once. And then again, I just like, I need to get on a sitcom so I can make some money, money. Like maybe five years or whatever later. Mm-hmm. And then that started happening again. What, do, what was the first important lesson you learned about working in a writer's room? Whether it's a sketch show or sitcom room. Well, I always just want to be, I always just want to prove my funny. Just as a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so I, it doesn't feel like I'm stealing money. And also, people are like, oh, this guy's funny. People from one room go to other rooms and get other jobs. So you, you're always like making yourself available to be hired by other people. And then one of the main lessons is one time I was just going to start quit stand-up. Mm-hmm. And just do straight writing. But then I got a job writing on the boondocks. You know, there's an animated commercial. For on, Adult uh, Swim. Adult Swim. And Aaron 
hired me because of my stand-up. And I was like, I can't stop stand-up. That's also getting me writing work. So it's like I just try to stay open and make sure, like, there's out of sight, out of mind. So people have to be able to access you to be like, we're going to hire, like, crashing. Pete's going to deny this, but (laughs) this is funny to me anyway. Okay. I was going to, a few years ago, I didn't write on the first season of Crashing. And then I was going to have some people at the house to watch some screeners. Uh So I said, I'm going to make them popcorn. I'm going to make this like a movie theater. Uh So now I live in Los Feliz. I go to Lawson's, right? Mm -hmm. I'm looking for salt. (laughs) And I'm looking up. And then I bump into Pete. I know Pete. We've done shows together. Seen him in Montreal. He's mm-hmm. funny shit. We did festivals together. And then we start joking around in this aisle, laughing, blah, 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 blah. I get my salt. I get over there, make popcorn. And, you know, we, me and my friends watch the movie. We turned off our phones. We watching Moonlight, I think. Okay. And then I turned my phone on after they left. My manager says, hey... Judd and Pete want to know if you're available for writing on Crashing. I, I bumped into him in a goddamn <laughs> Just looking for salt. Looking for salt <laughs> from Moonlight. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, but he's, you know, we, the last time he saw me perform was maybe a month or two before that. Mm-hmm. And then bumping him into that, just everything, you know, and, 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 and he complimented me on my set and stuff like that. But, uh, that th- I don't think it's a coincidence that that day, right? Know? And then were, the- you did, were you were, when you say you guys were joking around mm-hmm. in the aisle? Were you just kind of were you riffing about riffing. products? Riffing, or like, yeah, just yeah. Like, like, and having like a little improv um, sketch for the two of you. Yeah, just riffing. Yeah, you know. It, yeah, it really proves, like you just said a few minutes ago, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, just by. Just by getting out of the house yeah. and making yourself visible. Yeah. You know how many comics are famous just because they got out the house? <laughs> and, and it sounds simple. It does. It, but but it's, it's that simple. Like, like, people hate on those Instagram comics who do sketches. But they got up and did that shit every day. So they're making money. And now they're starting to branch into comedy and they hate people hate that. But they're showing up to something that they want to do. You just have to... Not even just to sound inspirational. Like, I'm a comic, right? But when I started showbiz, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I didn't, didn't know how to necessarily write a joke or understand a joke. But I kept doing it until you start getting to know people. And then those people either hire you or recommend you. It's just, so you just got to, Leave the fucking house, you know. It's just that simple. It might take longer than you want it to. Oh, definitely. But, but you know, let's not be spoiled, y'all. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, some work. Put your back into this shit. How do you how do you convince the 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 young the youngins of that of that those simple lessons? One to put yourself out there, but two to not expect everything to happen overnight. I mean, they're already doing it. They're already. They're already, like, you know, doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many millennials doing well right now. I think one thing they have that 
maybe I didn't agree with before, but I see why they have less patience. They want their shit now. So uh, my generation was taught to wait online for your turn. And millennials are like, I want my shit now. And then some of them are getting it right now. So it's like, maybe they were right. (laughs) Nah, maybe they were right. Maybe I shouldn't have waited online so patiently. Right. You know, like if it's working, you know what I mean? How is it? Yeah, wrong. What, what were we waiting for? Yeah, what the fuck was we like? We you know we showed everybody respect, <laughs> and we like uh, play by the rules. You play by the rules, but if that, pay your dues. Pay your dues. All those things, which which build great character. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if later on down the road this will hurt impatience, will hurt millennials. But I've seen it work, so I can't argue with none of that shit. You know. Well, I'm just glad that uh, neither one of us gave up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There you go. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, I, I would never give up because the first thing I ever gave up on was soccer. Mm-hmm. That's what I really wanted to be. And then years later, I'm like, I could, probably could have at least one year being a professional. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so I always regret that. So then comedy, I'm like, I, I can't. I'm trying to think of, of, of how, how good the Jamaican team was. And yeah. But even like in the MLS, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We went to one World Cup. <laughs> I mean, we were the worst team there, but we went. Now, actually, I think we were better than America. Maybe. Not Some sure. years, yeah. It's, it's hazy for <laughs> obvious reasons. We didn't do, do good. Well, Ian, I'm, I'm very glad that you got out of the house today. Yeah. And... Uh, Made it here to the store. I know we've had some parking lot issues. So. <laughs> and we, but we figured it out. We figured it out. And I know you have a special to finish. So mm-hmm. I'll let you get back to it. All right, thanks, brother. Thanks, Ian. Great seeing you. I'm going to run because i got to piss. <laughs> Been, I drank a lot of water. <laughs> Been practicing drinking water. Hey, I hate <laughs> hate what it does. <laughs> Ian Edwards, everybody. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.